This is the word of the Lord. Give it your full attention. Therefore now, or therefore from now, on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and counting their trespasses against them, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You may be seated. Saints, let's offer our time up to the Lord. Father, we ask that you help us now as we consider this great Mount Everest of verses We are going to attempt to climb holy ground. We ask that you remove all of the obstacles that are in our ways this morning. Remove all of the things that might distract us. Let us, Lord, put all of our evil and sinful thoughts aside. Let let us put our our cell phones down, Lord. Let us put all the things that we ought to be and could be doing, Lord, but because you have saved us, this is the only thing we should be doing. We've come this morning to hear you through the instrument of the preacher, so be with the preacher and be with those you are hearing. In Christ's name I pray, amen. When I was in college taking a philosophy class, the teacher asked us, what are the big questions of life? Uh, For example, and he gave all of these questions that philosophers have asked throughout the years, throughout the centuries. Number one, why are we here? Uh, Number two, why is there something rather than nothing? Number three, Uh, What is consciousness? Number four, do we have free will? All of these things that people attempt to answer, but they don't get very far. But when we consider the word of God and when we consider the questions that God presents to us in his word, the one thing and the one way we are to view Each question is from the perspective of eternity. You see, that is how the Word of God says we are to govern our questions. 
from the perspective of eternity. You remember what our Christ told his disciples. Whom do you say that I am? That is a question from the perspective of eternity. You see, Christ wasn't interested in wanting to know whom the people thought of him, but rather whom the people thought of him in relation to eternity. And of course, we hear of those great words from Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Saints, this morning, the question that we all must come to face at one point in our lives, a question that we continually ask ourselves, and it continues to be answered every single Sunday, every single time we are uh, we come to the Lord's table every single time uh, during the days we read our word and we hear various sermons, that is this. How can sinners be reconciled to holy God? Isn't that the question of all questions? Isn't that the question that's much deeper than why is there something rather than nothing? Isn't that a question that's more profound, more lofty than do we have free will or what is consciousness? But this one question that we all must come to answer at one point in our lives is how can sinful man be reconciled to holy God? How can sinful man bridge the gap between, rather the infinite gap between, us and holy God. How can sinful man have peace with God? And Paul gives to us these, this glorious, magnificent verse, does he not? He gives us this answer. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How can sinful man be ever reconciled to holy God? How can sinful man bridge the infinite gap between us and God? The Bible's answer is Jesus Christ. That is the way in which sinful man is reconciled to God. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Not any works of man, not any righteousness in ourselves, but solely upon Christ and Him alone. It was Horatius Bonner who expressed this wonderfully when he said, On merit not my own I stand, on doings which I have not done, merit beyond what I can claim, doings more perfect than my own, Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death. Saints, we claim all of our hope upon a life that we did not live and a death that we did not die. You see, this is for Paul the great message 
that God has given to us as the saints of God. You want to know what your message is to the world? It is the message of reconciliation. And the, the diamond that's found in this message is none other than Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg of you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Saints, this is your message to the world. This is the message that we preach in the streets, on the housetops, rooftops, all over. Sinners, be reconciled to God. Here Paul is imploring his readers to do what we ought to be doing. Now, if Paul was just to stop here, if Paul was just to stop at verse 20, as one pastor theologian has said, he would have been announcing the ultimate counsel of despair. If Paul just stopped at verse 20 and did not give us verse 21, he would have been giving to his hearers a message not of hope, but of despair. Now how so? Because the natural man, a man who is in Adam, a man who is a sinner in Adam, with, apart from grace, cannot be reconciled to God. Remember, in verse 20, Paul's last appeal is, be reconciled to God. That is our appeal to those who are not saved. Here, it is as if Paul is asking the apostle, is it not? Is he not? That man is filled from head to foot with sin. That man is is guilty of, of Adam's sin. They are dead in trespasses and sin. Man is at an infinite distance from God. So, so the natural man reading this might say, Paul, how can I, apart from grace, bridge the infinite gap upon my own strength and be reconciled to God? How can I do this, Paul? Again, we are back to the question of how can we be reconciled to holy God. And as we come to verse 21, Paul answers the question of all questions. How can man have peace with God? Again, in verse 21, he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For Paul's answer, first we see here that Paul is a top-notch, world-class theologian. And how do we know that? Because Paul here clearly dashes the pieces and removes from the minds of his hearers that he is no, and Christianity is no Pelagian form of religion. What Paul is saying is, Man, upon his own strength, cannot reconcile himself to God. Paul is not a works righteousness theologian. He doesn't believe it's a little bit of God and a little bit of you. 
mixed or well, the gates of paradise are opened. He doesn't believe that man can use his natural, disordered, and sinful powers to reconcile himself to God. But rather, it is God who reconciles himself to man. Or rather, it is God who reconciles man to himself. And we see this in the first word of verse 21. Again, the great appeal is to be reconciled to God. And naturally you would say, okay, Paul, what must I do? And in verse 21, the first word is he. He. What Paul is teaching us is that God in salvation takes the initiative. Before we ever took a step towards God, God took an infinite step toward us. It was God who took the initiative. Saints, this one word from Paul clearly dashes the pieces, the heresy that says, in salvation, God helps those who help themselves. In fact, it's quite the opposite, is it not? That God helps those who can't help themselves. Many may think that in salvation, the natural sinful man is running hard towards God. And, and right when the, the, the natural and sinful man is about to tire out, right when he needs a water break, God looks down and sees him. He sees his effort and then he steps in and he rescues him. Saints, God doesn't save us because we are trying really hard. Nor, as Paul says in Romans 9, on the man who wills or on the man who runs. But it is God who has mercy. The beginning of our salvation. The cause, the root of our reconciliation to God is God. And not us. But notice, saints, Paul says, he made him. He made him. Now, it doesn't mean that the father who is he here and him who is the eternal son, Jesus Christ here. It doesn't mean that the father made the son. Just as if two parents get together, male and female come together and make a child. Or the same way you take some Play-Doh and you make some sort of sculpture or whatever. Not that type of making, as if there once was a time when the sun was not. We also want to think that these words suggest that the Father made the Son take on flesh. That the Father made the Son take on flesh. The Father didn't force the Son to become incarnate. The Father didn't force the Son to take on flesh. There is no division of wills within the one God who is triune. And what that simply means is this. The Father doesn't want to do one thing, and the Son wants to do another thing, and the Spirit wants to do another thing. As if I want to do something, and Sister Mary wants to do something, and Pastor Antonio wants to do something else. But rather, what we have in God is a uniformity. What we have in God is a consistency of wills. 
Whatever the Father wills, the Son wills. And whatever the Son wills, the Spirit wills. Just as it was the Father's will, so too it was the will of the Son to become incarnate. It was the will of the Son to become sin on the behalf of His people. So we can say, just as the Father made the Son, the Son made Himself. So what does Paul mean when he says, he made him? What is Paul getting at here? Well, simply put, saints, it means that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent his Son. The Father sent his only beloved Son to be the Savior of the world. And friends, in these three words, do we not see the great love of God on display. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we still were in union with Adam, while we still had venom in our mouths, while we still had a sharp tongue towards God, a hatred towards God. God sends His Son. The Father sends His only begotten Son. And in this giving of His Son, saints, no greater proof of love has ever or will ever be shown to mankind. The Father gives to us whom we don't deserve. The Father gives to us His Son. But for what purpose, saints? What is the purpose of this giving of the Son? Why does the Father give to us the Son? Well, consider what Paul says in verse 21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. In our behalf. This is the reason. Why the son was sent. Here Paul identifies Christ first and foremost. As sinless. And this is what the Bible. Constantly affirms does it not. At his baptism. The heavens are opened up and the father declares. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Jesus said in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? And even out the mouth of his enemies, twice Pontius Pilate says, in him I find no wrong. And even in Christ's last and dying hours, what does a thief on the cross preach to those who were there? He says that this man has done no wrong. And then as the centurion is looking upon the crucified Christ, do you remember what he proclaims? Surely this was a righteous man. From the beginning to the end of our Lord's life, we read that Jesus Christ was sinless. That there was not a man in history, in the history of men, 
that will ever be more perfect than Jesus Christ. Sinless in thought and in action. But congregation, why does Paul feel the need to remind his hearers and to remind us of the sinlessness of Christ? What's the point? This is Christianity 101. Everyone knows that Jesus Christ is the eternal son who is sinless. The reason is so that we can once again be confronted with the deep depth of our sin in Adam. You see, Paul here, yes, is reminding us of something of Jesus Christ, but more so he's reminding us something about ourselves. Of how sinful we are. That only he who was freed from every any charge of disobeying the law of God, only he was able to free us from the curse of the law. That only he who was entirely without sin was able to die and to bear the sins of others. Only Christ, only one who is eternal God, who has taken the form of sinful man, came in the likeness of sinful man, full of grace and truth. Only this one, Because in this one, the fall could not reach. Because in this one who has come from heaven, Adam's line could not touch. You see, this one is not from the seed of Satan. But this one here is from the seed and is the seed of the woman. This one who is holy, who is perfect, who is undefiled. Sin and all of its defects could not touch. Only Christ. You see, friends, the reason why we affirm the sinlessness of our Lord is not only because it's a article of faith that we must get right, but if Christ is not sinless, then simply put, we have no salvation. If Christ is not sinless, if Christ at one moment had a sinful thought, if at one moment he slipped the tongue, if at one moment he made a wrong move, then friends, whom else can save us? Now notice what Paul says next. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. Now, friends, we aren't to interpret this verse like the great heretic Benny Hinn, who says, he who is the nature of God became the nature of Satan when he became sin. We aren't to read this verse and say that what Paul means here is that the eternal son who is sinless set aside his sinlessness and actually and personally became a sinner. No, that's not what we are to think. Paul has already made it clear that Jesus Christ is freed from 
all sin. So in, in what sense then is, is Christ made sin? What does this mean? Well, saints, in this way, that Christ, the eternal Son, the one who was without sin, was made a sin offering for his people. That Christ, who was without sin, was made a sin offering for his people. And in being made a sin offering for his people, all of our guilt, all of our sin was legally placed upon Christ. Saints, do you, do you feel the, the weight? Do you feel the gravity? This is why theologians call this one of the Mount Everest's of, of Bible verses. That the worst about us was laid upon Christ. That all of our misery and shame was laid upon Jesus Christ. For Jesus to be made sin is for our iniquity to be laid upon Him. Now again... This doesn't mean that Christ is personally a sinner. It doesn't mean that the Father looks down upon Him and when He sees His Son, He sees a sinner. That's not what that means. But He, as our federal head, He, as our representative, He, as the scapegoat, takes upon himself the punishment of our disobedience in Adam. He takes upon himself the punishment of sin. And as if Christ is on the cross, it is as if he is a sinner. Because he is paying the penalty. He's dying the death that sinners deserve. Again, not that he is a sinner but he dies a sinner's death. He goes in the place of sinners. The father hands his son over to receive what sinners ought to receive. The father hands his son over. He doesn't lose his union with the son. But what the Father does is He withdraws His protection. The Father no longer is protecting His Son, but He he hands His Son over to Roman soldiers. He hands His Son over to Pontius Pilate. He, He hands His Son over to sinful man to undergo a death that you and I deserve. He is cursed upon the tree as he hangs upon the tree. He is numbered among the transgressors. And as Christ lays his body down on that sacrificial altar at Calvary, he does for us what we could never do. Not that we could never die for our own sins. We surely can't attempt to die for our own sins. But it wouldn't amount to anything. See, then what does Christ do what we could never do? 
It is he offers a sacrifice that is able to satisfy the justice of God. That's what we could never do. Not in dying, but it's in the offering itself. What are you presenting to God? And the son says, I present on the behalf of my people, my sinless and spotless self. I take upon myself their punishment. Our Christ presents to the Father a most pure sacrifice for sin. And for what purpose? What is the reason for Christ to become sin? To be sin, rather? Consider what Paul says in verse 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This first and foremost speaks to the way in which the father views his son's sacrifice. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That is to say, when the father looks down upon his son's sacrifice, he does not see a dead carcass, but he sees a pleasing aroma. He sees something that is sweet to his nostrils. He sees one who is righteous. He sees one who offers himself up and perfectly and perpetually, continually satisfies the demands and justice of God. In our Lord's death, what does he do? Our Lord swings open the gates of paradise for us. Our Lord has built Jacob's ladder for us to climb. He has removed every obstacle for us to be reconciled to God. Every barrier. Martin Luther calls this the sweet exchange. Where in our Lord's death we give to him and we gave to him our sin. And he gives to us his righteousness. We receive from Christ that which we do not have in and of ourselves, that which we lost in Adam, and even more. You see, friends, in Jesus Christ, we receive not merely our sins forgiven, but a righteousness that allows us to stand perfectly before holy God. You see, Christ does not just place us back in the garden. He gives us a standing in paradise that can never be lost. And saints, this, this is all of our hope, is it not? Our hope is not built on how righteous we can be in this life. Our hope is not built on our church attendance or our table Bible reading or our prayer log, but our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is, as theologians say, the formal cause of justification. This is 
the ground. This is the root. This is the reason. This is the cause of why you are accepted before the Father is because you have received an alien righteousness that is not of your own, but you have been given and you have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when the Father looks upon you, he does not see you in your Adamic state. He does not see you as a sinner, but he sees you as he sees his Son. He sees you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In closing, saints, how can we ever be accepted to God, acceptable to God? How can we ever be reconciled to God? Paul again gives us the answer. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You might say, how can I become the righteousness of God? How can I get into Christ? How can this righteousness be mine? How can I have a perfect standing before the Father? This has been the great cry for theologians throughout the centuries. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is how you receive that which is not yours, that which you have not earned, that which you do not have in and of yourself. By God's grace, have faith upon Jesus Christ and none other. Let's pray.